The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. We want to take this moment to congratulate Netflix for the recent Oscar win by The Elephant Whisperers for Best Documentary Short. We had a chance to speak with director Cardiki Gonzalez and producer Doug Blush about their film. It's a story of how Bowman and Belly adopt a young orphaned elephant ragu. As Doug said, it's an unusual family story. And it's also subtly and unobtrusively a meditation on the relationship between humans and the other species of an ever warming world. So once again, congratulations, Cardiki, Doug, everyone who worked on the film and could see the Elephant Whisperers now streaming on Netflix. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Dogs, live at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival. And we're here at Portrait House. Portrait is the new creative alternative to LinkedIn for filmmakers. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here with Laura Gabbert, the director of Food and Country. Laura, congratulations on the film, and welcome to Top Dogs. Thank you so much for having me. Laura, can you just give us a brief logline of the film? It's actually really tough to give a brief logline of the film, but I will try. <laughs> the film is really a look at the people behind our food, the people behind the food we grow and make, and the sort of main thread of the film, trailblazer, food writer Ruth Reichel, basically decides to talk to as many people during the pandemic as she can about how they're struggling, how they're trying to innovate, how they're pivoting. So she reaches out to all these farmers, ranchers, fishermen, and restaurant folks. Your documentary, City of Gold, which I love, by the way, about the late, great L.A. food writer, Jonathan Gold, which premiered here at Sundance in 2015, documented the love affair between a food writer and his mm -hmm. city. Here you're featuring the legend, another legendary food writer, Ruth Reichel, in dialogue with the entire country, basically, mm -hmm. as it relates to our food systems, thus the title, Food and Country. First of all, for folks who don't know, who've maybe been living under a rock or aren't that familiar with food culture, sure. what can you tell us about Ruth Reichel? Ruth Reichel has been writing about food for 50 years. I think she published her first cookbook in 1970 or 71. The sort of highlights of her career, she's done so much. She was the restaurant critic and then editor at the LA Times. Then she became the restaurant critic at the New York Times. Then she went on to become the editor of Gourmet Magazine and really reinvigorated and reinvented that brand. She's written, I think, five best-selling memoirs and done a lot of TV, episodic kind of television, food television as well. And she's really been there to witness the evolution of food in our country. She talks about in the 50s, people didn't really care about their food. They didn't really care about what they ate, at least here in America. And she's really seen every twist and turn. I think because she's been so involved and so on the pulse, when the pandemic happened, she understood right away that it could be possibly devastating for the people who grow and make our food. And she was absolutely right. She had a real sense of urgency about going out there. And initially what she wanted to do was just keep a record, just keep a record day by day, talking to people all across the country. And she did it on Zoom and we recorded the Zooms. And what brought the two of you together? So I know Ruth a little bit. She's in a short scene in City of Gold. So I had met her, but I didn't know her well. And actually, the late Jonathan Gold's wife, Loria Choa, 
basically put us in touch. She said, you're both thinking about working on something similar. I had been thinking about working on something just on restaurants. And I started talking to Ruth and she's like, no, this is much bigger. Let's go, let's reach out as broadly as we can. And we just started collaborating. I had her record her Zoom calls. And when we could, we started to go out and travel. And as we sort of isolated the characters we wanted to focus on, we would go and stay for four or five days and film. We also had remote crews during the pandemic safely shooting some of our characters too. Much of the film is Ruth in her home on Zoom with mm. this cast of characters. So you're there capturing her point of view, but you're the ones who are actually out in the field. Yeah. And so we, the audience, get the on the ground perspective with these folks. What was it like for you to kind of be present, whereas Ruth is relating to them through the medium of Zoom? Yeah, and it's such a great question. And it was obviously so different than how I've made documentaries before, and it took a little getting used to. There were people she got to know much better than I did because she just had this like weekly conversations with them. So they really developed an intimacy and a closeness. And so it was strange to be once a few steps removed or a step removed from the subject. What we felt like, I'm diverging a little bit here, but what we felt like the Zoom calls did is it sort of liberated us from that traditional kind of interview setup for documentaries where just by the nature of setting up a camera and throwing up a light and setting up two chairs and making sure the room looks pretty, it changes the atmosphere. And with Zoom, we felt like they were almost these little tiny verite scenes because people kind of, you know, do these loosen up? They're basically just in conversation, you know? And of course, then we wanted to capture them on the ground so that when I would go out to the field with our crew, I could provide insight to Ruth for her next Zoom call with them. And I can see how she benefited from what your experiences were, and that allowed her to extend those relationships through the Zoom conversation, Correct. which then bounced back to you. You learned things from those conversations. Yeah. So a real collaboration. Yeah. And so I would listen to these Zooms and I'd be like, okay, I can see my shot list. I kind of know what that shot list is. I know how to illustrate this part of the story. And then we would discover things too, as one does in documentary filmmaking. But yeah, it worked surprisingly well. And I want to talk about the cast of characters writ large in a moment, but there's one person in particular who plays a special role, who is Alice Waters, who's a longtime friend and collaborator of Ruth's. And obviously, for folks who don't know, Alice Waters is not only the person who created the amazing restaurant Chez Panisse, but the whole food-to-table movement. Mm, yeah. It all goes back to yeah. Alice Waters. But it's amazing to see this friendship, again, in Zoom, and learn about their history together. I'm glad you asked about that because, yeah, so Ruth and Alice have known each other since the early 70s in Berkeley. So they've known each other a long time and both of their careers exploded together. We wanted Ruth to reach out to someone she was just close to and had history with. Like we all did that during Zoom. Like maybe you reach out to someone you haven't talked to in 20 years when we were all locked up. I mean, I think what it helped us do is tell the history of food, the history of the farm to table movement. The film's not specifically about that at all. But it gave us little peeks into Ruth's past and what she cared about when she was young and how she changed. And they talk about very personal things, what it's like to get vaccinated and their sort of emotional responses to it. They talk about philosophical things. It just gave us a lovely window into sort of another dimension of Ruth that you wouldn't get with her when she's talking to the farmers and ranchers and fishermen because then she's kind of in either confidant mode or reporting mode, and then eventually kind of friendship mode with some of them. So it was just one more sort of thread and layer we could weave through. Again, it's a way to cut to Ruth's history from a filmmaking standpoint. It's also a natural way to cut back in time. 
for me also, it, it was a way to see how massively COVID impacted people who have been these great innovators and have accomplished so much. Yeah. And then in the face of COVID, there is a certain sense of helplessness, even from someone like Alice Waters. Oh yeah, they don't know what to do. And I think early on in the film, Brandon Jew from Mr. Jews in Chinatown says, the problem is we're all having to figure out our own plan. There was no kind of cohesive plan for this. And especially for the people who are invisible to so many people in this country, which are the people who grow our food. I mean, I think our country failed pretty miserably at taking care of them and has historically as well. <laughs> and the film does delve into that too. So speaking of the people who take care of our food, can you introduce us to some of the yeah, other characters in yeah, this film? The ranchers, the restaurateurs, yeah, their farmers. Sure, I can list them out. For our restaurateurs, we have Rima Seal, who's based in the Bay Area. And she's working on, in the pandemic, basically trying to turn her restaurant into a worker-owned business because she just sees how devastating the pandemic is to her employees. There's Min Fawn, who has the restaurant Porridge and Puffs in Fennec Height in Los Angeles. She does something very surprising. I won't give it away during the pandemic. We have Steve Stratford, who is from Kansas. He's, a, he's sort of a mid-sized rancher who has just seen his revenues go down and down because of the consolidation of the meat packers. There is our rancher, Will Harris, who's a regenerative rancher in Bluffton, Georgia, who has been ranching, farming regeneratively since mid to late 90s. There is our wonderful farmers, Lee and Bob Jones in Huron, Ohio, and they're regenerative vegetable farmers. Their sole customer was restaurants before the pandemic. So imagine what their situation was. We have Angela and Carrie Knuth in Nebraska, and they are basically have been conventional soybean and corn farmers. And Angela is pushing her husband and her two sons to transition part of the farm to organic. So we see a little, little bit of drama and transition take place. Bren Smith, our ocean farmer who farms in Long Island, who is a sustainable regenerative shellfish and kelp farmer and has a four quadrant farm. So he's very nimble. He can always go to one, farming one thing when something fails. And he has an organization called Green Wave that helps train other ocean farmers. One of the threads that seems to connect all these people, at least for me, is that they all seem to be innovators in their fields. Of course, being an innovator, you also run into obstacles. And COVID being a huge obstacle, but huge. there are also political obstacles, yeah. bureaucratic obstacles, market force obstacles. Mm -hmm. How do you think Ruth was able to connect with these folks on the level of innovation? Oh, that's a great question. I think Ruth wanted to record people's stories, but she was also looking for hopeful stories. She was looking for people who were trying to stay independent in the face of the huge agribusiness, the huge corporations that control probably 80% of what we buy in the supermarket are made by a number of companies, maybe four to six companies. And some of these people have provided to those big companies. Angela Knuth, you know, corn and soy, they're growing commodities, basically, right? They're not really growing food for people to eat. Most of the farmland in this country, we grow commodities, not food, right? It's shocking, actually. I think that she was looking for people who could give her hope, and she was trying to puzzle out, can we fight this big system? How can we do it? Who are the people who are doing it where there may be a ripple effect? Like a Will Harris from the White Oak Pastures in Georgia, he says... There should be three or four white oak pastures in every agricultural county in this country. So I think it's just finding those people that inspire some hope in our models for change. I mean, Brent Smith not only is this innovative ocean farmer, he has a whole foundation where he just trains people who want to become ocean farmers, who are disillusioned with their work, who can own their 
small ocean farms and make a good living for themselves and also help the planet. <laughs> As you were making the film, shooting and then editing, how did the creative collaboration with Ruth yeah. also evolve? We collaborated so intensely for the first year and a half, maybe the pandemic, just talking and Zooming all the time and looking at all the Zoom footage and discovering it and everyone on our team doing research. Oh, I found this farmer. Maybe we maybe we talked to this person or this policy person we might want to talk to. Once we started editing, she really wanted to take a step back. She had other projects. She's finishing a novel right now. She had other projects she was working on. And so I think it worked really well. I think there's mutual respect there. She opened doors we would never have been able to open. She had such interesting context for some of our farmers and the movements they come out of, just because she's written about this stuff for so long. So we definitely consulted during the edit and she watched and gave us feedback. That's a hard process because people get attached to having different people in the film in different moments. But for the most part, it was a very easy collaboration. I think collaborations work when you are essentially trying to make the same movie. <laughs> we had the same movie in most ways in our mind. I think we had the same movie in terms of what we wanted people to take away from it and what we wanted people to feel from it. We didn't want it to be charts and graphs and educational. We wanted to really get to know who these people are and that they are innovative and smart and care deeply about what they do. So I think because we had that shared vision, anything we disagreed about, one of us would bend and kind of see the other person's point of view. It was great. And I think ultimately it feels seamless. Obviously, Ruth is the one taking yeah. us through this story, yeah. but the broader vision feels like one that is cohesive, united, and moving toward a thematic place of exploration and understanding. Oh, I'm glad you think so. Thanks so much. So just as you were finishing this mm -hmm. film, famed Danish chef Rene Redzepi, founder of Noma, which is perhaps the most acclaimed restaurant mm -hmm. in the world, announced that he's closing the restaurant and that the entire system of fine dining is, quote, unsustainable. As your film enters the world during this inflection point mm -hmm. in our food culture, what are your thoughts about where we may be headed, not just in terms of fine dining, mm -hmm. but the lens through which we view food? So I wish Ruth were here to answer that question. <laughs> I'll take a stab. I think he's right. Largely, fine dining is unsustainable. I think it depends on which how you look at it. But the hospitality industry is like the lowest paying industry, I think, in the country right? Their practices are abusive, basically. And they fight to keep the minimum wage as low as possible. I think that in terms of the restaurant business, I feel the same way about it as, as farming, is that I think it's a huge tanker to turn around. You know, the system's so entrenched. And in the restaurant business, there are these huge chain restaurants, right? And they're the same thing. They're not a monopoly, but the independent restaurants have to compete against them. They have economy of scale. And when there's economy of scale, they're usually pushing the pay down and down and using, you know, ingredients from the industrial agriculture system so they can get cheap food. So I think I know what Ruth would say. Ruth would say that she is worried. She's worried. I don't think she really thinks the restaurant business can really change or will change in the near future. I think she would say the same thing for Big Ag, and I would agree. But I think these people in the film show us hope. And COVID really did expose what was so broken about the food system. And I think people are really addressing it and talking about it. I heard Ruth say the other day, she's hopeful for the next generation. So you make lots of different kinds of films, mm -hmm. but you always seem to be drawn back into the world of food and making films about food. What is it about food that keeps pulling you back in? 
As a filmmaker, I am drawn to any type of filmmaking that puts us inside someone else's experience, that connects us, that humanizes people. So we feel more connected to people who are different than us. And I think food is just such a rich prism to do that. It's this common denominator that people just like and are drawn to, and it's essential to our lives. So essentially, it's a sort of a vehicle, it's a conduit to connect us. And it could be Yotam Odalenghi doing an event at the Met, but it's a way to explore history and the French Revolution. Or it can be Jonathan Gold. And that story was really, or that film was really more about understanding where you live and looking more deeply. And a way to access different communities, understand them is through food. And that's what Jonathan did so beautifully in his writing. He got so many people to explore their own city through food. And with that comes empathy and compassion. I, for one, am glad you, you keep revisiting this territory and you have found a way to just, I think, open up the world of food culture and so that it touches on all aspects of culture. And you really, I think, pose some really important questions with this film and thankfully found a way to do it through your collaboration with Ruth that is both inviting and delicious. <laughs> Sorry for that, folks. That's okay. <laughs> Thanks so much. I really loved your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Good luck with your screening tomorrow. Okay. Thanks so much. We want to take a moment to thank our friends at Portrait for hosting these conversations at Sundance. Portrait is the creative alternative to LinkedIn for filmmakers. Apply to join their beta at onportrait.com. That's all one word, www.onportrait.com.